1: We've got a fantastic guest joining us from Washington now. I'm pleased to say the former governor of Michigan, the current Secretary of Energy here in the United States, Jennifer Granholm, joins us right now. Secretary, thank you very much for joining us this morning. I'm about to commit an interview sin, so forgive me. I'm going to start really, really narrow. On the oil reserves in the SPR, they're going to be released as part of the pay-for. I didn't see in the White House release, and forgive me if you've done it subsequently, how much you're looking to raise from that? What is the number?
2: Yeah, there's uh, there wasn't a number in there probably strategically because some of this still has to be negotiated. But know that it's not selling off all of the strategic petroleum reserves. It is really it'll be a limited sale to be able to meet the goal, which is to I mean the president's goal was he did not want any of these pay fours as you know to raise taxes on those earning over uh, under four hundred thousand. He didn't want to see uh, a tax on electric vehicles or a gas tax. So this is one of, of several elements that were used as a paid for. And again, it's a limited sale.
1: As Secretary Granholm, it was interesting that the Republicans put out a document circulated by Republican lawmakers that had the number $6 billion in there, the amount of money that they would raise from the sale of emergency oil reserves, as you say, of course, not the entirety, a portion of them. Is that number wrong?
2: Uh, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that that is, you know, this is a framework that was announced. Not everything is set in stone and it may, you know, it may move a bit. But the bottom line is it is a limited sale.
3: Secretary Granholm, how far does this deal get toward moving to a an electric future? I'm talking about vehicles in particular, given the fact that there isn't necessarily provisions for taxes on gas, uh, higher taxes on gas, and the, the provision for electric vehicle charging stations is just $7.5 billion versus the call for $174 billion that Biden originally had for electric vehicle initiatives.
2: Yeah, I mean, part of that 174 was a big part of it was the point of sale tax, uh, you know, incentives, point of sale incentives for the purchase of electric vehicles so that they are at the same level as, as internal combustion vehicles. And that's something that the president will still fight for in the second part of the two-step dance that is being done um, the first part being the bipartisan part and the second part being reconciliation which I'm sure your viewers know is the is the budget reconciliation process and that in that part he's going to fight for uh, a lot of the climate related measures that he, put forth in the American Jobs Plan, as well as the measures in the American Families Plan, which involves preschool, it involves two years of free uh, community college, it involves the care economy. So this first step, important, uh, and important, I'll say this, in terms of electrifying the future is that we have a strong transmission grid. And you saw that there was $74 billion Uh, in the power sector, good chunk of that for expanding the capacity, the resiliency of the transmission grid, hugely important for electrifying.
3: Secretary, are you disappointed by the fact that there wasn't more momentum behind some of these initiatives that would push the United
2: States further toward some of the clean energy goals? I'm, I'm not surprised that this first package, this first framework, doesn't include a lot of that because there have there's you know it's been um, difficult to get a lot of tax incentives behind clean energy from the Republicans. But there's a lot of Republicans who are benefiting from it as well. And so in the second package, as the President mentioned yesterday, he's going to continue to fight for those climate measures, including a clean energy standard. So the bottom line is this is just one step, but we got to take the second step as well to get the president's full agenda through.
4: Some of the items as well that we're looking at, and I hearken back on some of my Muni days, uh, uh, Miss Secretary, about fixing bridges. I mean, of course, we talk about the electrification of, of buses, but it's more than that. It's updating the airports. It's fixing waterways. It's It's beyond just the size and scope of an electrification. Are those two, though, enough of a green energy for you?
2: Well, it's certainly I mean, this is an historic investment in water. So what they're going to do is make sure that every home in America has pipes that are safe to drink from so that there's not lead in the pipes. And so children are not poisoned. Every home, that every home in America has access to high speed Internet. It's an historic investment in rail. It's an historic investment in transit, as you suggest. And of course, it's an historic investment in the transmission grid. So all of those pieces are very important for America's future, and frankly, all of them are pieces that the public, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, overwhelmingly support, because who cares whether you're a Democrat or Republican? You wanna have water that's safe to drink.
4: Can we also just talk quickly about the grid, what you can do from a national level? We're coming off of Texas that we just saw. I'm from California. The power goes out in the summer. Every afternoon, you have to unplug your appliances. You try to go to dinner and they say we're out of power. Too bad. What can we do on a national level to make sure that we are shifting to being more climate friendly, but also maintaining reliability?
2: really important question. So what we need to do is to add capacity to the transmission to grid grid, to bring the clean energy that's being generated in the states that have a lot of wind and solar to the places that have load centers, which are using a lot of electricity. We have to make sure that we do what the Department of Energy is doing, which is investing in the research that allows for expanded a significant storage movement on energy storage so that we can use these clean energy assets 24 7 but the president also wants to see an investment for example in keeping the nuclear plants that we have online open or investment in next generation nuclear, which is baseload clean power, investment in geothermal, which is baseload clean power, investments in hydropower, which is baseload clean power. All of that has to happen. Not all of that was included in this first piece, but um, we're going to fight to make sure that all of that is included in the second bit of legislation that we hope will arrive at the president's desk this summer.
3: We're speaking with Jennifer Granholm, U.S. Secretary of Energy. And Secretary Granholm, there's a question about the shale producers here, even as we try uh, to talk about a transition to clean energy, shale producers have been behind a huge surge in economic activity for the United States, a huge concept of U.S. oil independence. And now we've seen shale production fall off substantially during the pandemic and not really come back as much, no longer thought of as the swing producers. How important is it in your view to get that production back up and running at the capacity that it has versus the discipline that we're hearing? out of the CEOs from a lot of these companies
2: well I think this is a really important question because the world as you know is moving to uh, clean electricity clean power and um, natural gas an important baseload fuel has some problems with clean I mean it, it is cleaner than coal certainly but it has methane emissions which is a very potent greenhouse gas it's got it's got co2 emissions what's so what's interesting is in the Uh, framework that was announced yesterday, there are um, demonstration, uh, significant amount of money for demonstration projects in what is known as carbon capture and sequestration, which could be used to to decarbonize the fossil fuel sector. And that to me is another very important technological step and step that helps our uh, climate goals Uh, And and it's technology that can be used here, but also help around the world to decarbonize. And everybody get to the goal that all these countries have signed on to, which is at the Paris Agreement that we get to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. I think that will help those kind of technologies will help for this, uh, for the oil and gas sector, the gas sector in particular, to be able to ramp up production, but in a way that is clean.
1: Governor, just quickly, just to round on this interview, what's the future, what's the role of the SPR in this administration
2: it's a it's an emergency stockpile essentially in the in case of in case we have obviously it was something that was um that was generated and, and particularly important during like the the oil embargo and you know the OPEC crisis is it but still we relevant? have this we have this as an important uh important measure in case there is um shortages in case we need to have it and so we're going to keep it and in fact it's in it's underneath the department of energy and we're putting it uh into a section of the department of energy that responds to emergencies so why is it being used to raise money is this an emergency it, every year i'm telling this is not new this is not a new no, thing. i understand at all. that
1: you do get a release <laughs> but to raise money to pay for an infrastructure plan that feels uh, a little honestly original. every
2: year congress uses it for some to pay for something or another that may not be related uh, to the reserve itself, so the reserve will be will be solid. We've got lots in the reserve. It will continue to be um, it'll continue to be there for the purposes for which it was intended. But it also has this mechanism that it's being uh, some of it gets sold off every year for other reasons that Congress wants to fund.
1: And this is one of those occasions, apparently, Secretary. Yeah. Fantastic to catch up, Secretary of Energy right. Jennifer Granholm. So Thank you. Let's continue this thing. We can do that with Republican Congressman French Hill of Arkansas. Congressman, fantastic to get you on the program with us. Can we just start with the infrastructure plan, just briefly, if you may? Looking at these numbers, you would think there'd be a big reaction here in the bond market, and we don't have one. So I want to understand from your perspective, what you've heard in the last 24 hours, what you think can actually be passed down on Capitol Hill in D.C.?
5: I think the moderate uh, Democrats and the Republicans in the Senate have been sort of thrown under the transit bus by their proposed compromise because immediately upon reaching a constructive bipartisan agreement with the president, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer said, well, we won't support this at all until we raise taxes on working people and business and pass our Green New Deal and other American family priorities through budget reconciliation. So once again, I think President Joe Biden is a prisoner of the left wing of the Democratic Party here in Washington. So just quickly, Congressman. Just to jump back in, what was agreed yesterday?
1: Dead on arrival already?
5: Well, the House Republicans have proposed a $400 billion surface transportation bill with a pilot program to have vehicles taxed on miles as opposed to the gas tax, which I think is a constructive approach. House Democrats are going to move a bill next week that's basically the Green New Deal priorities of about $570 billion. So It's not dead on arrival, but I wouldn't uh, say that it's uh, being acclaimed on both sides of the aisle, and that it's not done remotely yet.
3: Uh, Congressman, what would you be okay with when it comes to reconciliation in tandem with this bipartisan deal?
5: Well, we need targeted spending, and we need to get back to spending priorities instead of proposing to spend $6 trillion and increase the size of the federal government, way up over 25% of our gross domestic economy. We need to not raise taxes on workers, and on businesses as we try to come out of the pandemic and get people back to work. So Lisa, it's really a subject of not only the amount of money, but the target and the priorities. And that remains to be seen what the Democrats will propose in the Senate and propose in the House.
3: So Congressman, if there are no tax hikes attached to this or de minimis ones, ones that are more palatable to you, you would be willing to support a multi-trillion dollar package or at least not push back and vote on the bipartisan bill uh, and allow the reconciliation to go forward.
5: I don't think that's the way it's going to go, Lisa. I think you're going to try to have an infrastructure vote, but Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are not going to bring that infrastructure compromise approach to a vote until they get a vote on their reconciliation pact, which is a multi trillion dollar package with tax increases. That's what the Democrats in the House and the Democrats in the Senate are demanding of Chuck Schumer and of Nancy Pelosi. So I think it's premature to say, well, what does the final package look like?
4: Does this sort of two route approach, is that the way to be going?
5: Well, normally no. I thought what Joe, my, uh, Joe uh, Manchin thought he was doing with Susan Collins and others was coming up with a way to get a bipartisan infrastructure package with, with as much paying, pay for from previously appropriated funding as possible and get that passed in a clean way on a bipartisan basis in both houses of Congress. And clearly, yesterday, Uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer threw a wrench in that plan.
4: Senator or Congressman, I should say, you're also ranking member as we see here on the National Security International Development and Monetary Policy Subcommittee. When we think about the grid as being a national security issue, are we doing enough to really meet both requirements, making the grid reliable, transitioning perhaps to more of a green energy friendly, but it has to be protected as well from a national security perspective. Is there enough in this bill to do all of those?
5: Well, that's been an ongoing priority on a bipartisan basis in Congress. And we have two of the power control, powering sharing companies headquartered in Little Rock, Arkansas in my district, Southwest Power Pool and MISO. And in both instances, they have a reliability transfer uh, authority for power across this country that includes a strong cyber protection and grid resiliency initiative, and I've met with those companies and many utilities on it. So the private sector works on this every single day, and where the government can make strategic investments, I think you'd find bipartisan support. As to the amount, that's not something I can comment on today because I haven't studied their proposal.
4: And. We will uh, make sure to ask you as well another question because we're coming off of a bank conversation that we just had. Of course, the banks coming out and passing, of course, all of those stress tests. Can you confirm that you don't see systemic risk that the banks passing those stress tests are indeed a positive thing, returning that capital to shareholders?
5: I think the bank 's uh, financial strength through the pandemic has been one of the bright spots uh, that gives us the strength for the economy to know that we can get people back to work and have GDP grow between six and eight percent this year so I think that flying colors pass of the stress test indicates our economy is open and ready for business and I look forward to the results of that by more American, more Americans getting back to a full time job Congressman just before I let you go I just want to
1: finish on that the, the usefulness of stress tests if we never allow the banks to face stress again. And the Federal Reserve is seemingly pretty intent on never allowing that to happen. Last year, a fantastic example of that. The banks didn't get into the stress. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. But I want you to tell me, what's the value of a stress test if this Federal Reserve is hell bent on these banks never facing stress again?
5: Well, I don't agree with zero interest rates uh, that the Fed has proposed. And I don't think they should continue at the rate of $120 billion a month. Those benefit. uh, the economy in the short run during the pandemic, but it's time with an 8% projected growth rate to move away from that. But they have a primary obligation to regulate our banks and make sure they have the capital to operate a safe and sound environment. And that's what's been done. And it's been a big change from the 08, 09 crisis. And that's why you saw so many street firms convert to a commercial bank charter so they could build the capital and the resiliency necessary if there was an economic downturn. Congressman, always
1: smart, always sharp, and it's going to
5: catch up, sir. Come back soon. Thanks, Republican shop. Congressman, French Hill
1: of Arkansas. Thank you, sir. Perfect guest, the man himself, Mike Mayo, Wells Fargo Securities' U.S. Large Cap Bank Research Managing Director, joins us now to discuss. Mike, let's start here. After the close Monday, we could get some big capital return plans. What are the numbers that you're looking for, sir?
6: Well... Wow. Uh, this was the Fed stress test. And it used to be the Super Bowl of banking. And now it's like a preseason game. It was it was boring. But you know what? Uh, boring is beautiful for banks. The Fed threw the kitchen sink at the banks with the stress test. The banks passed with flying colors. As you mentioned, Monday at 4.30 p.m., we expect a flurry of press releases that announces increases in dividends and buybacks. And we ultimately expect capital return to double versus the prior year, and that should lead to a, an all-in yield, so that's the dividend yield plus buybacks, that's better than what it is for even junk bonds. So there's a lot of value with banks, and we think that will draw in new investors, quants, dividend funds, dividend growth funds. So ultimately, what this means is redemption for the banks. Remember, during the pandemic, uh, banks were going to fail, they were going to cut the dividends. Now, you have dividend increases and a bevy of banks with buyback increases you know, after Monday. So this is very good news for banks. And I would say thank you regulators after the global financial crisis worked. And now banks uh, and their investors should be able to reap the benefits.
3: So Mike, why are we not seeing more of a reaction in markets?
6: You know, people have been skeptical about banks for the past year. As you know, we upgraded a few of the large banks uh, in the middle of the, the crisis. Uh, they didn't trust the the resiliency of the banks, right? It, they, it was kind of the uh, the memory from the global financial crisis. It was still front and center, and it's like, okay, if something goes wrong, banks are going to get hurt. And that was the farthest from the truth. If anything, you know, it, the, the more of the risk has been in, outside of the banking industry. So just like there's been skepticism too much. Over the past year, there's still skepticism, but connect the dots. I mean, banks pass the Fed stress test. Monday at 4.30 p.m., you get the announcements, then you get the increases. No, I, Mike, hold a on sudden, a second.
3: I'm sorry. I don't think I hear from a lot of people that they're worried about some sort of systemic risk from the banks. I hear the fact that the yield curve is flattening, that this has been priced in. I mean, are you saying that it's not that, that people are still worried about systemic risk?
6: No, I think that's passed. That's what happened over the last six to 12 months. But now, Uh, people are like, well, we we don't really, we know the dividends are coming, but we don't really care that much. But I think they should care. Because if you look at the the dividend yield adjusted for buyback should be about 8%. Compared to the 10-year yield of under 2%, that gap is one of the widest in history. Where can you get an 8% yield globally? And in fact, that's 300 basis points above the junk bond yield. So Mm -hmm. I think people are just cynical and skeptical about the sustainability of banks' cap returns, the sustainability of earnings. And Lisa, you you raise a great point. The flatter yield curve is on people's minds. But look what just happened last week. The Fed said uh, now it's likely to have two increases in the Fed funds rate in 2023. And banks benefit twice as much from increases in short-term rates as they do from increases in long-term rates.
4: Mike, you're famous for your calls coming on the program and saying banks aren't financials. Banks are just tech companies. Despite all of the buybacks and dividends, are they investing enough to keep up with big tech?
6: Well, the largest banks certainly are. I mean, some of the best fintech players on the planet are Bank of America and J.P. Morgan. You have tens of millions of customers. uh, And this is going from digital interactions to digital relationships. They're not just touching customers through one point, but through multiple points. Uh, and they continue to invest and they continue to gain customers. And both Bank America, which is our number one pick, and JP Morgan, grew deposits over the past year equal to the six largest banks. And that was organic growth. And a lot of that is aided through digital banking.
1: Hey Mike, I've got to run. I apologize for my colleague, Lisa Abramowitz. I'm joking, Lisa. Mike Mayo, it's okay. Wells Fargo Securities, US large cap bank research manager director Hit this data right now with Torsten Slock, Apollo Global Management Chief Economist. Torsten, just pouring through the data this morning, the recent economic data as well. What's your take, sir?
7: So there are two very important components here. Of course, the first thing to watch is inflation. Uh, Core PC inflation was exactly as the consensus expected, uh, 3.4. So that means, of course, that we do see inflation higher and that is just confirming what we saw. Remember, we got the CPI numbers already. So that means that we already know that this month was indeed a very elevated level of inflation. The second thing is what Lisa just mentioned. This shift away from goods to services, to what extent are we seeing people go back on airplanes, stay at hotels, go to restaurants? The service part of the economy needs to come back, and that is exactly what we're seeing in the data and what we've been seeing. A lot of the high-frequency indicators, more people are flying on airplanes, more people are going to restaurants, more people are staying in hotels. So the trend is shifting from goods being a key driver to now moving towards services being a key driver. So those are the two main components of the report
1: here. Let's talk about how we capture some of those trends. Just run a clinic for us, a short one if you can. For people who tune in every now and again to a show like this and hear terms like CPI, PPE, PPI rather, PCE, core deflator, deflator. What are all these
7: things, Torsten? Yeah, so what the key issue really here is to monitor what the Fed is watching. And the Fed has very clearly said that they monitor core inflation and specifically the core PCE, inflation indicator, which just came out. And why do they monitor core inflation and what does core inflation mean? Well, normally we measure inflation, including everything, also including very volatile components, such as food and energy. But the Fed has the logic, which makes a lot of sense to say, well, we don't wanna monitor and put monetary policy according to very volatile indicators. So let's instead look at those parts of inflation that are relatively stable, that tells us something about where the economy is going. And core inflation, meaning excluding the most volatile components, meaning food and energy, does represent a very good picture of where is the economy at the moment. And that indicator at the moment is significantly above the Fed's inflation target of two. And that's where this debate about, now that we're so much higher than the Fed's inflation target of two, is that something that's temporary? Is that something that's permanent? And that is the discussion that we're having in markets mainly what are the reasons that one could believe why this could be a more permanent problem.
3: And Torsten, a lot of people have dismissed some of these traditional metrics of inflation just simply because the composition has changed so much during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Services, such a big component of some of these inflation metrics, completely fell out of bed simply because people were not allowed to go out and do stuff. Now we're seeing it come back online. How significant is it for you that in this most recent data, we saw a disappointment in terms of services spending, that that isn't coming back perhaps as quickly as some people had previously expected?
7: Yeah, this is very important. Uh, think about it, CPI or inflation is measured as the basket of consumption that we all have every month. So if my consumption changes during the pandemic, I don't fly, I don't stay at hotels, I don't go to restaurants, of course I will spend less money on those components and those components are mainly services. So that's why during the pandemic people spend a lot more money on goods and much less on services. That's changing now. So that's why from a basket perspective, and exactly as you're pointing out, it becomes relevant to monitor whether, are we seeing prices go up of airline tickets, of hotels, of restaurants, which is exactly what we've seen in the inflation data. And that's what has been lifting the level of inflation to this much higher level relative to where the Fed's target is. So that's why over the next several months, we need to monitor very carefully whether the services component, in other words, the reopening parts the economy continue to see high inflation which is what jay Powell early this week also was pointing to so he's saying this is all temporary but there are some reasons to worry that this might be more permanent commodity prices if i type CRB, go on my bloomberg screen i see commodity prices still very elevated i also look at of course the labor market being still very tight And of course, also the supply chain problems. If you look at the regional Fed surveys, also show a lot of consistent problems with supply chains. So there are some reasons to believe that this is not just going to be a few months and then inflation comes down. So that's why the discussion, in particular for rates, is all about this issue. How long time is this inflation problem going to persist?
3: We're speaking with Torsten Slock, Apollo Global Management Chief Economist. You came to this buy-side firm from the sell-side firm of Deutsche Bank, where you ruled over the economics team for a long time. And now you actually have to put this into implementation Uh, and help them direct their strategy. And I'm wondering, given the details that we're getting out here, is your view that the market is right, that it is risk on low rates in perpetuity because the signs of longer-term inflation, I hear what you're saying on commodity standpoint, but when it comes to the deployment of some of the cash that people have in savings account, there hasn't been a sign of some some sort of massive rush that can outweigh uh, some of the higher prices uh, that might keep people from spending too much for too long.
7: Yeah, from an investor perspective, I mean, it's very clear at the moment, the level of long rates is very low, the level of short rates is very low, the credit spreads across the board, IG, high yield loans are very, very tight, stocks are basically at all time highs. So with that backdrop, it does become very important to think about if there is an inflation risk, if there's a higher likelihood that this cloud that we're seeing on the horizon, if it does start raining over the next several months, then investors should be more prepared for that event. In other words, I would think about the investment outlook at the moment as, is there a chance that the Fed might begin to turn even more hawkish, they just turned slightly more hawkish last week, but if they do begin to send more hawkish signals, then we do see more upside risk to inflation. If we do see more upside risk in markets to the Fed adjusting their message, then that would have some negative implications for credit spreads, for equities, and they might also have negative implications for the dollar. So the short answer to your question, Lisa, turning this into investment advice and thinking about what the implications are, there are good reasons to be very cautious here in terms of the outlook, at least as long as this cloud is hanging out there and the fear of inflation still is so pronounced. In a few months' time, we will know if it did start to rain, if we did see inflation. But for now, there are still good reasons to be worried about the inflation outlook potentially being a bigger problem than what the Fed is appreciating at the moment.
4: Can you square for more then, Torsten, Given that there's a labor problem, not a skills problem, why we have record 9.3 million job openings and no one wants to fill them?
7: Yeah, this is, of course, a very important discussion in terms of the labor market. There are more job openings than there are unemployed people. I mean, think about that. That tells you that by definition, we have a skills mismatch. The job openings are requiring skills that the labor market or the individuals who are unemployed in the labor market don't necessarily have. And that can not only be a skills match in terms of education and background, it can also be a mismatch in terms of geographical skills that people live in the different zip code relative to where the jobs are. And a very important aspect of this is also that it could also be that the job openings have been in manufacturing, which is the goods sector. Whereas a lot of the layoffs during the pandemic was in the service sector, again, airlines, hotels, restaurants. So we're seeing nice hiring and also nice job openings in the service sector, again, in the airline, uh, uh, hotels and restaurants and leisure and hospitality more generally. But we're also seeing very significant job openings in manufacturing. So it is this mismatch in the labor market to your question, Taylor, that uh, it's very important that we need to see... A lot of the job openings be filled. And that's why you're seeing wages go up. I mean, think about in the full service restaurants have seen wages in the last three, four months go up by a full dollar for fifteen and a half dollars an hour to sixteen and a half dollars an hour. That's not coming down again. The best estimate here is probably that we will see wages stay at a more elevated level and, if you will, from a market perspective, see wages probably continue to go up. So that's why the labor market, that's not just a temporary issue. It is a very persistent risk to this inflation outlook.
4: Yeah. Are we paying attention to the fact that once you raise wages, it's hard to cut them so they're not necessarily transitory?
7: It is a ratchet effect. Once you have jacked wages up, then it is very difficult. You almost never see in any country around the world wages begin to go down. Even during recessions, it is very rare to see wages begin to move lower. So that's why also when you think about the year-over-year effect, it sticks, if you will, now that the 12-month window moves forward and the level of wages is now at this higher level and it's not going to go down. If anything, it might even go further up. So that's why the wage inflation issue is a very important issue when we think about what might be happening. And that doesn't mean necessarily that that will spill over to selling prices. It could also be that companies basically begin to see squeezed margins. But if that's the case, that's also another risk for credit and equities because lower margin, think about the PE ratio. If the E and the PE ratio starts to go down, that begins to also bring some risk to the PE. And that's why valuations in equities and credit, as long as you have an inflation problem on inflation risk, does look fairly vulnerable.
1: Hey, Torsten, it's good to hear from you, as always, always sharp. Thank you, sir. Torsten Slark, Apollo Global Management Chief Economist.
0: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.